Well, good morning. This is our fifth week in quarantine, and that means that it's the fifth time that I've been preaching to a camera in an empty room. And uh, I imagine that you, uh, as I am, are ready uh, to meet together again. We've been in the book of Hebrews for a while now, up until last week, which was Easter. Took a break to do a special sermon for that time. I want to get back into Hebrews today, but we were supposed to be in Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and pause our order for a minute here, and I actually want to jump forward to a passage that I think could be particularly timely, helpful for you, from Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to get to this text soon enough. It'll only be several months, I think, until we get to this passage in the flow, where you'll see the context a bit better, understand a bit more of it. But I think that some of it will be helpful for today. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to read through this passage. That's Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Then I want to go ahead and pray and go back into that verse, those couple of verses, and um, see how it might be helpful for us right now. Let's read. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I first pray to you with gratitude. Lord, thank you so much for providing a body of believers who love you, gotten to know each other as we've gotten to know you better. Lord, I'm so grateful for my brothers and sisters in Christ who uh, faithfully continue along uh, watching these sermons, being in conversation in one way or another with other Christians. And I pray that we would be especially helped as I, I think uh, that many of us are beginning to be taxed by the lack of gathering together, by the lack of face-to-face -to -face togetherness. Lord, I know that we are not alone in this. I know that people who uh, are not even Christians uh, here around us are feeling similarly uh, absent, isolated, secluded from other people. Lord, I pray that you would use this time, use it to instill in us a greater desire to gather in your name for church, to gather and plan and learn and grow that we may impact the world around us and we may bring into our fellowship more and more people who will love honor and worship you father please use this passage for i think precisely what it was here for please use it to encourage us lift us up admonish us perhaps help our thinking to be fit for your word help us to be prepared to see what it says and to align ourselves to more clearly and more completely to what your word says. We love you, Lord. We ask for your help this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. In this passage, this is built upon a, a, a writing to an audience of people who have endured great hardships for being Christians. This audience, this Hebrew Christian audience, is being encouraged by the author to remain steadfast, to endure to the end, to stay faithful. And these 
faithful proddings have been given to them because they are enduring difficulties. In fact, probably much more significant difficulties than you and I have had to face for being Christian. It's in the face of this kind of suffering, this kind of trial, that the author tells his audience, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In light of the persecution and suffering, this is a very timely and helpful thing for this audience, and I hope that it can be for us as well. Now, you may not realize this, but you and I, we both need to be stirred up. We need to be encouraged. We need for believers in our lives to help prod us on in our faith, in our love and our good works. And I think that it is clear that this stirring is designed primarily to be done in person. Look what it says in the very next phrase. How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. In other words, stir up by way of reminder. Notes could be helpful. Written letters and books could be helpful. Emails could be helpful but not neglecting to meet together. That's the crux of this phrase, that they would be face-to-face with one another for this stirring to take place. I know that for some of you, you may feel like it's been quite some time since you've been stirred up face-to-face by other believers. I know that there's a lot of conversation right now in church world about online church and live streaming. As you can imagine, because we're doing something similar to this right now in this period of time, we're wondering some of those same things. I've been engaging in some of those conversations. But I've definitely heard people say things similar to, can't online church be sufficient? Can't gathering be sufficiently accomplished internet connections. I will say that it is true, at least in part, that we may leverage technology in order to bridge the togetherness gaps in our lives, especially in times like this. I also think that it's true that God and his sweet mercy may choose to do work in people's hearts even as we are separated from one another and praise God for doing that. We live in a time that we can be most resilient to separation, that we can have the most access to tools to try to still converse with, see each other, hear each other's voices. And for that, we should be very grateful and slow to judge those who are taking advantage of those kinds of tools in order to stay connected. But that does not mean that the church separated is an adequate alternative for meeting together. There is no genuine substitute for Christians being with each other face to face. I know that there are Christians on both sides of this coronavirus issue right now. I I mean that there are believers who think that uh, the reactions to what's going on have been Uh, good, maybe not even enough. Some who think coronavirus is a huge deal and others who think that it's not. And I know that there's a broad spectrum of opinions out there and lots of us are even in between there some way along the line. But wherever you are on the spectrum of opinions here, you are likely feeling the ache for togetherness. And you should. We were made to be together. 
online connections will never be able to suffice. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I'm well aware that this passage is in the context of church discipline. There's sin. There's an issue being dealt with by some believers. And Jesus is giving a specific encouragement where two or three are gathered. I'm there with you. We're in a situation right now in our county, and I know many others in our country have it even worse, where we've been specifically requested, even even demanded, that we would not meet in groups of even two or three people. This is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying about his gathering with us. That there's a special way that he will be with gathered saints, even if it's just a few. Even in a difficult time like discipline, the togetherness language in the New Testament is so assumed to be in person that it's just expected that proximity and closeness are understood. In other words, we don't see the biblical authors pause and say, oh, when I say do these things together, I mean not by letter or from a distance. They don't even say that. It's just assumed that they know that this will be done person to person. Perhaps for a time, perhaps for a time, you might be able to do this kind of thing, the two or three gathered, the church in the home kind of thing. You may perhaps be able to make that work out for a season if, if you are blessed enough to live with other believers. But what about the brothers and sisters in Christ who are the sole believer in their household? What about them? If this is you, I want you to know that we remember you. In fact, I can say from my heart, I miss you the most. My heart breaks knowing that there are believers who are part of our church here and those around the globe who have been entirely isolated from Christians with virtually no end in sight. You have definitely been remembered. We have not forgotten that you are alone. We pray for you. We try to stay in contact with you because we know that your isolation must feel much more lonely than those who have the great benefit the gracious benefit from God to be able to live with other believers. I can't help but think sometimes in all of this attempt to stop a disease spread, would it not be better for two Christians to share a deadly disease and then depart and be with Christ together rather than having to remain in isolation and live a few years longer? You are not forgotten, lone Christian. And you Christians who are so blessed to have other believers in your home, be careful to not neglect our secluded family members. This passage goes on. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. As is the habit of some. How long can Christians abstain from meeting together? Well, quite simply, according to this text, until it becomes a habit. How much time should we have between our meetings and how often should we miss those regular meetings until it becomes a habit? The Greek word here is ethos. It means custom or practice. Habit is a good good definition of this. This is why I don't think it's necessarily sinful for a person to miss getting together with other believers occasionally. 
You and I know many scenarios we can come up with. Sickness, you have to stay home from a Sunday service and miss being together with the saints. Maybe you're traveling and so you miss Bible study or small group for a couple of weeks while you're out of town. There are a hundred different scenarios that we can imagine where a person would not be meeting with saints in a way that they would otherwise regularly be doing so. This does not become a problem until it is habit, until it could be said to be habitual. The person who misses once every single month, that's a habit. The person who misses on occasion is not yet a habit. As you know, we have canceled church services at the Mission Church. We have shut down our typical Sunday gathering time and even the other gatherings that we do in a given week hosted by our church throughout the month of April. And we have done this, I can say with confidence, for myself especially, very reluctantly. I have hated making that decision. It is serious business for a church to close its doors. And we ought not make that decision lightly. In fact, it's a much bigger deal for us to close church doors than it is to close schools, businesses, or even public transportation. So if you were to ask me, Rich, how can you feel comfortable about closing the church doors? Well, quite frankly, I don't feel comfortable about it. I feel much angst about it. I'm aching to meet again. I'm sick of preaching to empty rooms without my brothers and sisters present. And my, my hope and the reason that I will do this is because I love you and I want good for you even though you can't be here right now either. We made this decision as the elders of this church out of a couple primary impulses, two major desires. The desire to submit to our government and to display that submission and a desire to demonstrate our love for neighbor. And for the record, Neither of those desires required believing the current narrative on the severity of the virus. That was irrelevant, technically. And we have always expected for this to be for a very limited time. Because we know that you and I can only endure the giving up of essentials for a very short time. Let there be no mistake about it. Church is essential. The gathering of the saints is essential. In fact, I might argue that the gathering of the saints is the single most essential thing that happens on planet Earth. Perhaps I'll save that for another sermon. But it is possible for us to give up essentials for a short time, but not indefinitely. Have you ever heard the rule of threes regarding survival? that a person can survive approximately three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food, and three months without shelter. But how long do you think that Christians can survive without gathering? How long until it becomes habitual and and therefore dishonoring to our God? I don't know the answer to that, but I suspect we're about to find out. But in order for us to even make the wisest decision about when and how we'll be able to meet again, we must first understand that for the church, meeting together is essential. I think that most Christians would agree with that, that it's important for churches to be able to meet together. But many might ask the question, what about 
emergencies? What about in times of distress? Well, I actually think that this passage speaks directly to that. Continue on here. I'll do verse 25 again. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more as you see the day drawing near. What's the day drawing near? That day being referred to here, a capital D for you, probably most, most of you didn't see that in the text, refers to the end. As history marches on, we are all waiting for Jesus' return. Jesus himself tells us that that day will be preceded by global events that are likened to birth pains of a woman prior to having a baby. We are expecting hard days ahead. Earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, cries for peace and safety, global governments consolidating control, increased Christian persecution. The author here is telling his audience, when you see those things, you should be even more diligent to gather, not less. You see that? What he's saying is, you're going to see things even more as, the, as you see the day drawing near. What could, what could he be talking about? As you see the things that have been told that will come before the end, as you start watching them get worse and worse and the birth pains are getting greater and greater and greater, as that comes down the pike for you, you should be even more committed to getting together, not less. You gathering should be more important, not less. The frequency of your gathering should be more not less. You're going to need more encouragement, not less. The church does not stop being the church during times of crisis. In fact, it is during times of crisis that the church proves itself to be Christ's church. I want you to consider for a moment. I've heard the word unprecedented thrown around quite a bit recently, and I think, at least in part, that's understandable. There are some ways in which some of the events taking place right now are a bit unprecedented, but not entirely. I want you to consider for a moment the Spanish flu. Perhaps we can learn a bit from our Christian brothers and sisters who endured the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. By any measure, this was a genuine global health crisis. It infected 500 million people. That includes elderly down to children. Even healthy young adults with no pre-existing conditions could wake up in the morning, fall ill, and then be dead by dinner time. All in all, the Spanish flu lasted almost two years with a death toll of 50 million people around the globe. During the worst part of that pandemic, in certain American cities, churches were issued a formal request to close their doors. We know that many complied, even if reluctantly. Yet even during this extraordinary time, Christians could not abstain from meeting together for long. Some churches even began to plan outdoor worship services and issue uh, licenses from, from the, the, the park rangers that they could gather together and continue to worship. Even at the same time, meeting in open spaces while practicing social distancing. They actually did this so they could worship together, even if in a unique way, until eventually health officials banned 
even outdoor meetings. To compare the Spanish flu, I know, to our current epidemic is almost laughable. The horror of the Spanish flu was many, many times worse than our current circumstance by even the most cynical models that we are currently looking at. Yet, even during that desperate time, the official church shutdown lasted for only four weeks. I told you before that we're currently in week five. Churches had gotten so tired of not being together by the fourth week that pastors wrote wrote letters to the governing officials, that they they cried out to those who are making these prohibitions that they would release, uh, take the restrictions off, and they did. Four weeks was as long as they could last. 50 million dead. Because those Christians knew, as we should today, that meeting together as a church body is essential. During that epidemic, Baptist pastor J. Milton Waldron from Washington, D.C. wrote the following. The authorities are woefully lacking in reverence to God and wanting in a correct knowledge of the character and mission of the church when they place it in the same class with pool rooms, dance halls, moving picture places, and theaters. He then adds, the Christian church is not a luxury but a necessity to the life and perpetuity of any nation. Close quote. Ask yourself this. Should it be surprising to us that the very same leaders who praise abortion the murder of tens of millions of innocent unborn babies who celebrate the perversion of sexuality many of whom are entirely indifferent to, if not openly opposed to, the worship of our God, who have sought to limit or even forbid our prayers and praise in every sphere of public life. Should it be surprising that they would be so quick to denigrate the gathering of God's people? I am well aware that many people are quick to defend the government crackdown on Christian gatherings by saying that they are not singling out churches. Even if that were true, it's quite frankly irrelevant. How is it that the gathering of law-abiding, healthy, low-risk, peace-loving Christians for the purpose of singing praises to Jesus and praying for the good of our nation is considered less essential than Burger King? Because our government leaders do not know what a church is or what it does. For the record... I do not expect our government to have the wisdom necessary to understand such things. Proverbs 28.5 says, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Now this is not meant to be a rebellious, anti-government rhetoric. We should be eager to submit to our government. I told you before, that's one of the primary reasons that we made the decision to to cancel our beloved Christian services. We are Christians. Throughout history, we have been known to be the martyrs, not the mercenaries. We don't kill for the growth of the kingdom. We die for the growth of the kingdom. 
The very best thing for a nation is for it to be filled with Christians who love God most, neighbor second, and self last. We make the best citizens. Proverbs 11, 11 says, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. We pray that God will help us learn how to love our leaders, respect and honor them, know how to honor the leaders in difficult times such as these. Lord, bless our president and Congress, our House of Representatives, the branches of our government, even the local levels, those who operate in our midst, who seek to do good for us. Lord, even those who don't, we pray that you would give them the gift of repentance. Father, we pray good for our nation and for our government, and we are willing to sacrifice and even die for the good of our neighbors. Jesus, you taught us to love even our enemies. For the, for the American Christian who might even be able to say that the government is our enemy, we are commanded to love that enemy. But I do not believe government is our enemy. This is not mere rebellious anti-government rhetoric. Nor is this mere ignorant flippancy about health and safety. We have never once said that we should disregard reasonable measures to ensure the health of ourselves or others. While I'm sure that you can find some churches and pastors somewhere, of the dozen pastors that I am in immediate personal and direct contact with and the many dozens of others whom I am well-connected with in network in some way, I don't know of any who have flippantly dismissed reasonable public safety measures. Uh, demanding attendance by even high-risk people, expecting the hugs and the greeting with the holy kiss for those who might be sick or could spread it, those not, not making any alterations at all right now. I don't even know of this happening. We don't want people to get sick, especially those who are high-risk, and we don't want to needlessly pass along illness to others. Your pastors want what's best for you. So what is best for you? Do you know what's best for you, for your community, and for your nation? For Christians to gather and for Christians to do what only Christians can do. I set up shop quite often these days when I need to get out of the home and focus on some study in our lobby. And those who've been in our church know that we have a big wall that has the mission statement of our church plastered on it. We exist too. Glorify God, strengthen believers, and reach the lost. Those things are the single most essential things that humans can do on this earth. And they can only be done by believers. They can only be done by Christians. We are the only ones who can willfully, honorably worship and sing praises to in glory for our God. We are the only ones who God can use to strengthen up other believers in that same way. A brotherly love in that kind of strengthening. And we are the ones who have been commanded to make disciples of the nations, to reach the lost. I'm concerned that many Christians may be giving coronavirus more credit than it is worth here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that it's not bad. I don't mean that at all. In fact, it could be 10 times. It could be 100 times worse 
than it is. Those who say it's not a big deal could be flat wrong, and they could be proven wrong over and over again by the potential millions, maybe billions, who could be lost from it. But no matter how deadly the coronavirus is, sin is infinitely worse. And no amount of social distancing, no amount of washing your hands or not touching your face can keep it from spreading. It has universally afflicted every member of the human race. And contrary to coronavirus, sin has a 100% mortality rate. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No amount of respirators, no amount of vaccines, no amount of even herd immunity can cure it. This is at least one reason, just one reason, why it is essential for churches to stay open. Because we herald the only cure in a lost and dying world. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That we have a perfect Lord and Savior who lived amongst our viruses, amongst our sin, amongst our horrors, who lived perfectly in the midst of us, the only man who never sinned. And then he went to the cross to die a sinner's death for us that by belief in him, we may have eternal life. This beautiful truth is proclaimed by believers around the world and it is the only cure. It is the only way that a person can pass from death to life. What's more, we offer it to all who will receive it without price. Churches are like hospitals for souls. And hospitals ought not be shut down, especially when people most need them. Our fellow Christians must be strengthened during difficult times, not isolated. They're like the doctors and nurses and public health officials who have been specifically commissioned by Jesus to distribute the cure, salvation, to every dying soul. No hospital in the world should be shutting its doors and sending home its staff during a pandemic, and neither should we. This can't last for long. I want to close with these thoughts of application. I hope that you've been able to harness some of the information that you've been hearing about this coronavirus and the restrictions, and you've been able to, to leverage it for good in your thinking. I'm gonna give you two, two ways you might be able to do that. First, to acknowledge that Jesus is our only hope. He's our only hope. This, this passage actually begins by saying, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This passage begins with our hope being built on Jesus. What is the encouragement that should be stirred up the love and good works. What is the basis for all of it? Our faith in Jesus. We have one hope, and it is our Lord, our Savior. Let us pray that God will use this time in our lives to shake us awake. If you've been slumbering over these past months or years in your life, wake up. 
God is using this as a gracious alarm to show us that all of the things that we could put hope in in the world fall. Nothing can stand to this tsunami. So many people have placed so much hope in earthly things. One of the most obvious and clear to us is seeing people who've placed hope in earthly leaders all around us. Has it occurred to you that the brightest minds on the planet, the richest people, the most influential and powerful leaders in the world have been focusing on this issue and the best that they can come up with is stay home and wash your hands. This should highlight the hopelessness of our human plight apart from Jesus. The best we've got is wash your hands. Without Jesus, all of our attempts to get to God are equally as futile. None of our works can save us, just like all of the efforts cannot extinguish this virus before it has run its course. It can't be done. We are harnessing all of our efforts on the globe. If we were to do the same, harness all the efforts on the globe, do you know what it would look like for us if we were to harness the efforts in order to get to God? Do you know what it would look like? The Tower of Babel. People gathering, coordinating together to build a tower to get higher than the flood, to to build a tower and make a name for themselves up into the heavens. How futile. We build safety net after safety net in our life. In fact, oftentimes we, we, we invest tons of money and energy and thinking and our prowess and our cunning in order to establish one after the other after the other after the other so that if something bad were to happen, we've got a net. And don't worry, there's another net under that and a net under that and a net under that. And while it's not wrong to try to prepare well for the future and, and have, have in mind that you want to be able to help people in difficult times of trouble, sometimes it is especially gracious for God to set fire to those nets that we would see all over again. We've got nothing without Jesus. Those safety nets are an illusion. They always have been. God alone is sovereign. Let this moment drive us to the reality that Jesus is our only hope. Second, let us be reminded that the word of God is our one source that can be truly and definitively trusted. I've been amazed at how much information is out there how many different opinions, how many times I see different numbers, different charts, and different graphs that entirely contradict each other. Likewise, I see sometimes the same articles, the same charts and graphs being referred to, but interpreted in entirely opposite directions. You know, many people, just like me, have lost virtually all trust in our media over the past couple of years. I don't know if that's true for you, but even more have lost all faith in graphs and charts. Have we not been guaranteed who will be president and that overturn in a night? Have we not been guaranteed the utter destruction of the planet if something doesn't change and it doesn't come to pass? The smartest, most brilliant minds on the planet with all of their study and calculations and charting cannot be trusted like the word of God. Isn't it wonderful in times like this to open the Bible and not go, well, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust what Paul says here. I'm not sure I can trust what John says here. 
the Bible has demonstrated time and time again for thousands of years its trustworthiness. It will stand true. Why? Because it's God's word. It's inspired of him, perfectly cared for, preserved for us, that we may trust in it. Oh, goodness. You might need to wash your mind out after watching the news for a week by just spending time in the word and letting it wash over you just to trust what God's word has said. It is so steadfast in times like this. No manipulated data, no graphs that are being twisted, no wrong teaching that's going to lead us astray. God's word given to us. Lastly and most pointedly to this text, we ought to long to be together. We ought to long for it. Are you hurting to be together with Christians? Are you aching to just spend time with other believers? Good. Feel it. Soak it in. Let that be the fuel in your tank that drives you towards a future desire to invest in relationships with fellow believers. Let this be a paradigm-shifting moment for you. Remember that time back then in 2020 where we weren't even allowed to worship with our fellow saints? We couldn't even gather two people together holding hands and praying? Let us never again take for granted the gathering of saints and let us pray that we can return together safely very, very soon. Let's do that now. Lord, you are so gracious to us. Father, if we have taken for granted the gathering of Christians into a place to worship you, whether it be corporate worship gatherings on Sundays that are so critical for us, or, or, or the, the small group gatherings and Bible studies around your word with, with smaller groups all throughout the valley and in coffee shops and in, in our homes uh, at all different times throughout the week that are so life-giving to us. Father, if we have ever taken those for granted, forgive us. Forgive us. Lord, thank you for your gracious gift of togetherness with believers, that we don't do this alone, that life gets to be lived together, and that is such a benefit to us. Lord, we are eager to return back with one another. Please make it happen soon. Protect people in this congregation from getting sick. Protect our neighbors, Lord. Watch over our nation. Bring us to our knees in repentance. Let us use this moment to turn our eyes towards you. Have hope in you alone. Trust your word only. Father, we are so, so blessed. And we so rarely remember those blessings until they're taken away. Father, help us to see it. Help us to acknowledge that you're the one who's given us those blessings. And Father, again, we do ask that you would return us back soon together, that we may not neglect what you've designed for Christian living, us being together in your name. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.